If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is where we, we will begin. We are in the midst of a series uh, talking about we value. We value. And um, we have started with um, looking at, at the mission of our church. And we talked a number of months ago, we walked through uh, the mission statement of Shades Mountain Baptist Church, and our mission is that we are sending transformed people to influence their world for Christ. Sending transformed people to influence their world for Christ. What that does, that answers the, the what question. This is what we do. Sending transformed people to influence their world for Christ. Well, then the next question that you have is, is how do you do that? And that's what your strategy is. And your strategy for us is really threefold. That is, we meet with God, we connect with others, and we live on purpose. And so you meet with God. We come together here. We meet with God corporately. We meet with God individually. Then we connect with other people, and we live our life with purpose. And that's how we do that. That's how we are sending out transformed people to influence their world for God. But then the question is, well, then why do we do this? You know, why are we doing this? This is what our values are our values. And what values are, they are core, core values are guiding principles that dictate behavior and actions. It is your core values that, that guide you as to what you do. We have values as individuals. It, it determines why we say yes to some things and why we say no to other things. And uh, that, is, that is who we are. It's why we do things. We have this as individuals and we also have it as a church. And then, so we look at a church and we say, why do we do what we do? And so our core values are things that come up through the congregation. They're not handed down from a pastor, staff, or a committee, but it just comes up. It's who we are. In our hundred plus years of, of existence, this is, this is who we are. And as we talked about it and identified it, we determined that there are five core values here at Shades Mountain Baptist Church. And these five core values are this and the, the things that we have been preaching on and we've looked at them for the last uh, three weeks and uh, then we wrap up next week. But let me just go through real quickly those five values and they are this. Number one is every disciple growing. Every disciple growing. And second is that every person on mission. And third is that every relationship is meaningful. And fourth is that every generation together. And last is every pursuit with excellence. So think about it. Every disciple growing. It's a responsibility, it's a value. We value that every person needs to grow in Christ. Everyone has spiritual gifts. Our job as a, as a minister and staff is to equip you to do work of ministry. Every disciple growing. Every person on mission. We're all on mission. We're on mission with our neighbors across the street. We're on mission at our work, on mission at our school. And for some, we're called to go on mission overseas or to other places around the United States. Every person is on mission. Every relationship is meaningful. That is where we get to that point where we take the mass off and, and we just become real people and, and, and we have fellowship and community and to know that every relationship is meaningful. And then there's every generation together, which we'll talk about today. And then next week, talk about every pursuit is with excellence, every pursuit with excellence. But today it's every generation together. I have so looked forward to this message because I, I've got the privilege of pastoring a church that is truly a multi-generational church. And in today's world, there are a lot of times to where we've got certain churches that, that appeal to certain ages. And, and so you, all your direction goes to a younger crowd or an older crowd. 
But for us, we've got a wonderful challenge is that we have all kind of ages. The average age of our church is 44. That's the average age of our church. 42% of our members are 50 years and older. 42% are 50 years and older. That means 58% of our people are younger than 50. 32% of all of our membership, one-third of our membership is under 30. So we have an amazing balance of a lot of young people, a lot of folks in the middle, and a lot of older folks. And so this whole family comes together as a multi-generational church. And so we see pictures of this just through everything that we do. We, we can just look at a snapshot of our church and we see we are truly multi-generational. And see, we believe that it's important for every generation to come together. And we have every generation that comes together in worship this morning. And when we get the choir back, we kind of gave them a little hiatus uh, there for uh, July. But when we get them back and you begin to look across that spectrum, you see all ages in there. And then I love it when, when, when Logan and Abby, and they get our student choir and they place them in there. And then you see dotted in that landscape of adults, you see young people in there. And it's just a beautiful mosaic of, of who we are as a church. When we commission teams to go, you see that they're all different ages. You just saw one today as we have different ages that get together and, 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 and move out and, and do things. But you see, in worship, we believe that we have everybody comes together, all different ages. And I begin to think about that because that's usually where people say you get these worship wars, trying to figure out what music that, uh, that you're supposed to sing and who wants what. And I looked at it from a different perspective of not so much singing the songs that, that I would want to sing, but I think about what would happen if, um, if you only sang the music that you liked in your particular age group, how you would lose out. For instance, if we just had a service just for younger people, and if we just had younger people, we probably wouldn't have old hymns that they would sing. And I remember I got Logan this week. I said, just pull me some of the hymns that we've sung uh, over the last few weeks that probably would not have made a, uh, a young service, okay? And he, he said, okay, things like How Firm a Foundation. What a great song. How Great Thou Art. How about Standing on the Promises? Standing on the Promises. Do you understand? Standing on the Promises written by uh, Kelso Carter in 1886, placed in the book of books, the 1956 Broadman Hymnal, to where when you turn in that 266 page, you see Standing on the Promises. What a song, standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages, hear His praises sing. Glory in the highest, we will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. And then you move into the refrain and go, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God my Savior, standing, standing. And then you get those really good guys that are leading music and go, standing, hold that note, hey, we're standing on the promises of God. Second stanza, here we go, Woo! They would have missed that. They would have missed that. And you say, oh, that's a great song, but it's a great message. These are tough times we live in. We need to know. We need to stand on the promises of God. They'd have missed it. And see, some of the older folks, they'd say, yes, yeah, the way it needs to be. We need to be that. Oh, but look at the other side. Look at the songs that older people would have missed if all we did was just some traditional service to say, if it ain't broad, then I ain't going to sing it. Uh, and if that's all we did, we would have missed out on the latest of our worship songs. Songs such as The Great I Am, God of the Ages, Great Are You, Lord. And last Sunday, 
We had this incredible service last Sunday, and we came down to the end, and the last song that we sang, Abby led us in this, was the Revelation song. And it just started out with her singing about worthy is the Lord and holy is he. And we went about the worthy is the Lord who was slain and and holy is he. And she began to sing. And then all of a sudden it began to build. And as we got to the close of that, there was this huge crescendo to where we closed our service singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. With all creation, I sing praise to the King of kings. You are my everything and I will adore you. That's how we end it. Oh, it was a powerful moment. You would have missed it if we didn't introduce those kind of songs in a service. Every generation together is the value of all of us coming together and worshiping. But you see, also, I believe it's important for different generations to work together and to serve alongside of each other and to interact with each other and to benefit from each other. Every mission team that goes out, just as I said, is usually spread out with different ages. You know what they do? They go out together. When they go out together, they work together. You listen to the interviews of the people that come back from the trip, it's usually twofold of the things that were most meaningful. Number one, the work that we did, a particular life I connected with, and number two is it was so neat interacting with someone that was a different age than I was. And whether it's an older person talking about how sharp that younger person was or that younger person talking about how wise that older person was, it's just great to hear that. Because see, what that is, that's every generation together. Every generation working together, whether it be on these mission trips. Or how about just local? The 729 work that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago of where men get together and they go and they find someone and they work for two, two hours in their yard or help them in other areas. Do you know what the ages range for one of their projects? There was an eight-year-old boy out there and an 80-year-old man. Every generation together. Rubbing shoulders, getting to talk, getting to interact, benefiting from each other. Every generation together. Now, there's a biblical mandate for this. I want to give you just three points today as to what the Bible says about every generation together. And uh, we're going to start with Psalm chapter 78, Psalm 78. And the first point I want you to write down is a biblical mandate we have is to teach God's Word and works to the next generations, plural. Teach God's Word and works to the next generations, plural. Look what he says, verses 1 through 6. He says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope on God. We are to tell it to this generation who's then to tell to the next generation. If you look in the New Living Translation of verse 3, It says, the stories we have heard and known, the stories our ancestors handed down to us. We are to teach the biblical stories to our next generation. 
the stories in the Bible. He says, this is what we're to teach. I'm going through reading through the Bible, uh, which a lot of us will do that as you go through each year and read through the Bible. And what has jumped out at me is when you start reading through the Old Testament, how many times God says, do you remember when I took you out of Egypt and got you across the Red Sea? He tells that story like over and over and over and over. There are times when I'm reading, I say, God, I think they got it. And you know what God says to me? He says, no, Danny, they didn't get it. And he says, and guess what? Sometimes you don't get it. You need to be reminded. And he tells, it's amazing. You start reading through, he says, I am the God who took you out of Egypt, got you across the Red Sea. I'm the God that took you out of, remember, took you out of Egypt. Remember, remember, keep telling the stories. We are to tell the stories from one generation to another. This is why the Old Testament is important. You tell those Old Testament stories. See the works and wonders of God. You get into the New Testament. You talk about the miracles that Jesus did. And then the story that we tell over and over and over is the story of salvation. Kind of goes back to that old hymn, I love to tell the story, right? We are to love to tell the story. The story of how Christ came out of heaven and came to earth lived the perfect life, went to a cross, died a death for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And then three days later was raised from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, giving us the opportunity to be adopted into the family of God and to become believers in Christ and and to be a part of his family. And that when we die, we'll spend eternity in heaven. And then to listen to his words when he said, and one day I'm coming back. And so he will be coming back. We need to tell those stories. And so we're to teach this. And so every generation together means we have the responsibility of one generation teaching the next generation to the next generation. So that's everything from senior adults teaching a group to this group teaching the next group and this group teaching their children and on and on and on. And, 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 you know, my heart just just gets warmed over the people that just feel connected to this. Uh, Mrs. Sharman in our church. She's been teaching. She taught first grade. She stepped away, I think, this past year. Over 55 years, first graders. So when she was a young married adult, she felt connected to first graders, and she teached them for over 55 years. Greg Vaughn, where are you? Greg, I'm going to embarrass you. Greg, Greg, you and Sandy have been teaching young marrieds for, I thought it was over 30 years. Do you remember? 35, close enough. 35 years. They've been teaching young married adults. You would think that they'd get it down by 35 years, wouldn't you, uh, over there? And what was it? They had a passion for young couples in marriage. They had a commitment about marriage, and they felt that, that couples need to get a good, strong biblical foundation and understand what marriage is all about and what God says about it. And they put their life into it. And for 35 years of teaching, you see, we are to teach that next generation The words and the works of God. Second of all, we are to provide a foundation for hope for each generation. Provide a foundation for hope for each generation. This is why all the generations come together, is to provide a foundation for hope for each generation. The writer of Psalm, when he finished the the first six verses saying we need to teach all these generations, he then gave you the reason, and that's in verse 7 so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Okay, I want, you to, I want you to park yourself on that one. Plant yourself on that verse. So that they should set their hope 
in God. Don't set their hope in a politician. Don't set their hope in the things of the world. Set their hope in God. And when you are telling a generation that you can set your hope in God, what you're telling a generation is things are not hopeless. You see, young people growing up today, all they're probably hearing from from other adults is this is the worst it's ever been. It's a hopeless situation. It's bad. And so they're walking around trying to find something to look for some kind of hope. And what they're saying here is that he says, no. He says, you teach them the word of God and the works of God so that they can set their hope in God. And let me just remind you, yes, these are tough times. There's always been tough times. In the 60s, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. We had the hippies and the drugs and the LSD and the Vietnam War. That was some rough times. In the 70s, we had Watergate where all of a sudden our idea of the presidency and trust in that office just got exploded. We had the oil embargo, the long gas lines, the Cold War with Russia, and just the general malaise that was over all of our society. And then the 80s came, and the 80s came, there was some great hope, but at the same time, there was double-digit inflation. And if you wanted to buy a house, do you know what your interest was? The mortgage, up to 18% interest. Now, young people today, you can get a mortgage for 35 to 4% interest. Back then, it was 18% interest. Those are tough days. In the 90s, you had the Gulf War, World Trade Center bombing, the Oklahoma City bombing. You had the L.A. riots. Then you come into the 2000s. You've got 9-11. We've got terrorism. We've got racial unrest, all of that. Listen, every decade carries with it its troubles. And times will always be changing. People will change. Rulers come, rulers go. Economies flourish and economies struggle. Wars break out. People lose their jobs. People lose their lives. There's heartache and there's heartbreak. But in every decade, the correct response is the same. Set your hope in God. He is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who's in control. He's the one that holds your destiny in his hands. And so when you're trying to find someone, something to say, where can I put my hope? You put your hope in God. That's why you remind people of the stories of this is what God has done in the past. And the same God that was there in the past is the same God that's here today, and he's the same God that's going to be here tomorrow. You set your hope in God. And we're multi-generation, and because we're multi-generation, we have a responsibility of older generations to talk to younger generations and say, set your hope in God. God. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, he gives you two things here in this verse. Number one is this, remind them of the works of God in the Bible and in your life. This is a challenge to all of us in our different generations is that we're to remind them of the works of God, remind them of the works of God in the Bible and also in your life. Now, we've already talked about teaching out of God's Word. That's good. But when we have every generation together There's a different responsibility, I believe, for us as older generation in teaching younger generation. Peer-to-peer is good stuff. That's fine. But there's something special when someone who's a little older, that's traveled down life's journey a little bit further, who from their life experience can take God's Word and then share with people that are younger and say, this is what God's Word says, and let me flesh it out for you. Because this is my story. This is the journey I've taken. And I have seen the faithfulness of God 
through here. This is how God has guided me. This is how God has sustained me. Every generation together, we are to remind others, younger generations, of the works of God in the Bible and in your life. And that's why those who are in the younger generations are struggling in their marriage. Wouldn't it be nice to have someone that had gone, had gone further in their journey? And they also had some of those struggles. But yet they can pour into your life and say, let me tell you, there's hope. And let me tell you, beyond just the hope, let me give you some real practical things that, that you can do. And we've, we've walked through these paths. Or someone here that's faced cancer and they've got someone else who's already faced cancer and they've gone beyond that and they can come back and they can talk to you. Couples that deal with infertility and then there are other couples in this church that have dealt with that that can come alongside of you and provide comfort with you. Those that are dealing with desiring to to adoption or, or to be foster care and there are others who have done that and are doing that that can then pour into you. There are younger people that that are dealing with whether it be peer pressure or just trying to understand who they are and their self-esteem issues. And, and it doesn't mean you've got to be so much older for this to happen. You could take a 15-year-old teenager that's struggling with some self-esteem issues and talk to a 25-year-old in our singles young professionals class who's 10 years ahead of them and say, I know exactly where you've been. I have walked those things, and I'm still young enough to be able to remember those days and connect with you. It's just a generation to another generation. And that's the joy of having all these generations together. Remind them of the works of God in the Bible and in your life. And number two is remind them of the grace of God to motivate them to keep his commandments. Remind them of the grace of God to motivate them to keep his commandments. Now look at every word of that. You're to remind them of the grace of God And in reminding him of that, that motivates you to keep his commandments. See, what happens is we feel like we get legalistic when we say, we need to obey God's word. You need to obey God's word. And some people sit there and say, ah, God's just a killjoy and he's given us all these laws. No, not at all. The Ten Commandments that God gave, the first laws that got laid down, is in Exodus chapter 20. And before you get to the Ten Commandments, here's the first two verses and the way God introduces those. He says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. As he is speaking to the people, as you're down there and he's at Mount Sinai and, and uh, everything's happening up there and the voice of God comes down, he says, let me introduce myself to you. I am the Lord your God. I'm the one that took you out of Egypt and got you out of slavery. Well, now, if I'm standing there and I hear that, I say, wow, those are bad times. And this is the God that loved me so much, that was faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those. He says, I have taken you out of Egypt, and I've gotten you safely out of there and got you out of slavery. And he said, this is who I am. Now, because I'm a gracious, loving God who is faithful to his promises, let me give you some rules to help you in your life. And I've got these 10 commandments. They're going to help you. And when I understand the grace of God, it motivates me to obey his commands. And today when we sit and we talk to people about the cross and we talk about what Jesus did and the six hours that he was suspended between heaven and earth and not only the physical pain but the emotional pain and the spiritual pain, all that was going in on those six hours and even leading up to that, to know that he did all of that for me, 
and for you. That when I take a serious look at the cross and then I see the empty tomb, I say, God, because of your grace, it motivates me to want to do what you have commanded me to do. Because I love you, I want to obey you and I want to follow you. Every generation coming together, we are to remind other generations, remind people the grace of God to motivate them to keep his commandments. Now, that's Psalm. Let me switch over and give you the last point. I want you to turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. Titus. Some of you saying, where is Titus? Well, it's before you get to Hebrews, okay? So go Titus, go over the New Testament, and uh, if you find Philemon, you say, praise God, I found that one chapter book. Well, it's to the left of that. All right, you got Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. Titus. Titus, a pastor in, in Crete. Paul writing to him, and as he's writing to him, he's giving him some just some great, great words and great challenges. And then he comes to the um, to chapter two. And in chapter two, let me tell you what the point is. And our third point is this: is to be a role model or a mentor to another generation. Be a role model slash mentor to another generation. Be a role model mentor to another generation. In Titus, look what he says. He says, this is what I want you to teach them to do. Verse 2, older men, and when they say older men and later on they say older women, some commentators believe older at that means that their kids have grown up and moved out of the house. Okay? All right? But older men, they are to be sober-minded. They're to be sober-minded. That means they're to be sound mind, have good judgment. Dignified, that means worthy of respect. Self-controlled, sensible behavior, live wisely. Sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. That can be patience and endurance. This is what the older men are to be. So look at that again. Older men, I would just say adult men. Let's just say 45 and up or so. See, now you guys are 45. I'm not an old man. I know I'm getting into the trouble. 85 and up. All right, here we go. Uh, Over there uh, on here. Older men, sober-minded, dignified, worthy of respect. They're talking about that as, as, as as you age, you need to be worthy of respect. You're to be someone with sound judgment. You're to be self-controlled in your actions, and you're to be sound in love, Sound in your faith and endurance and in patience, steadfastness. He says, that's who you are to be. That's who you are to be. You see, I love it when he says this because what happens is, is that sometimes as you get older, you almost feel like your usefulness is almost put on the shelf. And for some, as they get older, their life is filled more with regrets of all the things that they didn't do. And now they're too old to be able to try those things and choices that they didn't make. He's not sitting there saying, think all about the past and the mistakes that you made. Think about the future and think about now. And you be a person that's self-controlled, be a one that's of good judgment, worthy of respect, one of dignity. And he says, you need to be that type of man. And he's challenging the older men to be this way. And he says, as you get older, it doesn't mean you stop living for the Lord. It doesn't mean that now you can relax your moral standards. And just because the kids have graduated from high school and now they're off to college doesn't mean that you need to follow up on that midlife crisis and destroy your marriage. 
And don't feel like just because you retired from a career that your usefulness in the kingdom of God has been put on the shelf. The Apostle Paul, the same one that wrote this letter to Titus, is the same one, and when he wrote to Timothy, his very last letter, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I mean, what he said is, I'm running through the tape. Or that great theologian, Rascal Flats, when they said, I want to be running when the sand runs out. What a great song. I want to be running when the sand runs out. That's what he's challenging us to do. He says, older men, be dignified, be, wor- be worthy of respect, be self-controlled in your behavior. And then he comes to verse 6, and he says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> hey, older men, I want you to be self-controlled. Hey, younger men, I want you to be self-controlled. Well, where do we learn that? Well, let me give you an idea. What I'd love for you to do is to watch some of these older men over here and watch their lives. Older men, live a life that can be emulated. Be a role model. Be a mentor to these younger guys so that when someone is talking to them and challenging them to be men of respect, men of sound judgment, men of self-control, that you don't have to sit there and look and say, well, I've never seen that before. But you can just look up in your church in a worship service, walking through the halls, shoulder to shoulder on a mission project, and see older men that are living that type of life. That's what you want. You want to pick out those, those examples that you can go with. I remember after Janice and I got married, and uh, the services were over uh, in in what we call the conference center. And uh, as we got married, we were here in this church. uh, We're lay people. And um, I remember picking out a couple that I wanted to emulate. You know, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, who's really got this thing together? And it's a couple that some of the older folks will know. It was Frank and Belva Steed. Raise your hand if you remember Frank and Belva Steed. Frank and Belva. Yeah, a lot of people knew Frank and Belva Steed. See, Frank Steed was the jeweler, uh, Southeastern Jewelers. And um, uh, when Janice and I were uh, thinking about getting married, uh, he's the one that we were going to talk to about buying a ring. And as we were getting close to getting that time to get, to get married, I had to go for nine weeks up in a, uh, a nowhere place in New Jersey for data training for nine weeks in the middle of the winter. And so uh, on the fourth week, which is when you got to travel back home, we talked about setting a date and uh, maybe um, getting engaged. So we went over to uh, Frank Steed uh, to take a look at rings. And so I was going to be the one that was going to sort of pick out which ring, but Janice wanted her to pick out the cut. And so we talked, and she moved on, and I talked to Frank. I said, okay, Frank. And I said, tell you what. Uh, I said, I'm going to be back in uh, five weeks. And when I get back, then I'd like to have it, and I'm going to surprise her, and we'll get engaged. She said, okay, okay. And I went back up to the tundra of north uh, in New Jersey, which at that time, uh, back in uh, 1978, had one of the biggest snowfalls they've had in their history. You can go on the records and, and see it. And um, I'm in the frozen tundra, and I have, a, uh, I have a go-home weekend in two weeks, but then the whole class is over in five. I arrived on Sunday. On Monday that afternoon, I called Frank. I said, hey, Frank, I'm coming home in two weeks. Think you can get that ring ready for me? And his voice, he laughed. He says, I've already put in the order. I knew you'd change your mind. <laughs> he said, I knew you'd rather do it sooner than later. And, uh, and it was great. You know, got the ring, got engaged. And we're sitting there in church. And Frank and Belva would sit in their normal spot. 
And I would always look at them. And the reason I did is they were like one of the happiest couples I'd ever seen. And Janice told me, she said, it's because she laughed at all his jokes. That's why you wanted to be like him. I said, yes, that's it. And we both got a laugh because they they were just a light. They were a bright light. And I would find myself watching them and watching the way that that they they handled themselves and and the way they, they were together. It's just finding someone like that. You see, what it is, 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 is we're being a role model, a mentor to another generation. Well, that was the men, but look what they said about the women. Then they came here in verse 3, and he says, older women. Whoa, that was tough right there. Uh, women who had been on the journey of life longer than others, okay? Likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Apparently, they had an alcohol problem back there with the women in Crete. It's what, that's, hey, I'm, it's what Scripture says. Okay. All right. Uh, and um, uh, <laughs> no, I won't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and you are proud of me, aren't you, Janice? I'll tell you at home what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> and she really enjoys those conversations. She says, I'm so glad you've matured. Um, Okay, where are we here? Okay, uh, it says that they are to teach what is good. Okay, they are to teach what is good. And, and, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. How about that? The older women who've been married longer is to sit there and talk to younger women and say, I know he drives you crazy, and I know these things drive you crazy, but let me just tell you, this is how you can love your husband. This is how you can love your children. And then he comes down and it says to be self-controlled. Here we are again. So the young women to be self-controlled. It says pure fidelity, marital fidelity, being committed to your husband and only to your husband, working at home. Now, during that day in the Greco-Roman society, those that are reading this don't see this as a limiting factor saying, oh, the women just have to be at home. No, this is what they did. They they managed the home, and it says to show them how to effectively and officially manage the home. And they're kind, and they're submissive to their own husbands, as the Scripture teaches, so they understand roles within a marriage. And it says that the Word of God may not be reviled. He says, older women, you have an opportunity to pour into younger women. And to talk to them. And sometimes there's some things you can talk to them that maybe they can't really express to their husbands. And so they can talk to you and you can help them walk through that. We've got something at our church at Susan Forehand in the uh, women's ministry called uh, Tables. It's just a, a, a group that gets around and, and they meet during the week. And it's different age groups, different generations. They come together and they're able to just talk about situations, get to know each other, get to have fun, but at the same time dig into some deeper conversations to help women as they go through this, uh, some of the difficulties of our culture and just living life and raising children and marriage and all the different pressures that come upon us. It's a ministry that we have already that are helping women to do this. And so when you look at this, I said, be a role model, a mentor to another generation. And I phrased it that way. I didn't say to a younger generation. I said to another generation. Because as committed as I am to older people mentoring younger, I'm also committed to reverse mentoring. In 1999, Jack Welch, who was the CEO of General Electric, began something called reverse mentoring. He hired a younger person to come in and to meet with him and to teach him how to use his computer. 
to show him how do you do the computer? How do you do this? He then took this younger person and began to run ideas from him and said, I'm an older man. You're younger. You're in this new generation. Give me your ideas. What does this look like? And from that point, you began to see this movement of reverse mentoring, and that is younger people pouring into the lives of older people. And so this is a challenge to you that are younger, that I encourage you to build those relationships with those that are older and to know that if an older person is going to pour into you, at the same time, you're able to pour into them. And so I, I, I began to just make a note here of things that I could think about of, as older people learning from younger people. We learn technology. Amen? I mean, isn't it great for a young person to say, this is how you use your iPhone? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know I could do that. I mean, it's great to be with someone young because they show you something new that your phone can do. You know, your phone can do like one million things. And if you're my age, mine does 12 uh, on there. And, and all of a sudden, they introduce more and more things. You learn about technology and show you effective ways to use it. And the, what they do is when you're with younger people, they open your eyes to needs in our community. Uh, you know, one of the great things about the millennial generation is, is some people say, oh, they're this entitled generation. I look at it as they're the engaged generation. They're engaged in what's going on in our world. They're engaged in social justice, and they want to be involved in these things, in compassionate justice. When you begin to talk to some of these people, all of a sudden they begin to open your eyes to their needs out here that I've just been driving past and never thought, never thought about getting involved in. And they do this, then they stretch you, and they energize you. Everybody gets energized when younger people are around them. Yeah, have you ever, just on a whole different scale, when you go to a nursing home, and whenever someone visits a nursing home and they take their kids, do you see how the people light up? Why do they light up? Because they just love the youth. They love these kids. They just want to hug on them, and they just that freshness, that newness of life. It's the same thing when a younger person can kind of pour into the life of an older person. It stretches you, and it energizes you every generation together. Listen, let's, reach, let's teach God's Word and works to the next generation. Let's provide a foundation for hope for each generation by reminding them of the Word and works of God and of the grace of God that motivates us to obey His command. And let's be a role model. Let's be a mentor to another generation. Hey, listen, everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a story. And as you walk a long journey of life, your story develops, the story of your walk with God. And along that pathway, people intersect your life, and they affect your life. Yesterday afternoon, right here, there was a funeral service for Rurik Wheeler. Rurik Wheeler was 93 years old, was on faculty at um, Sanford University, a master math teacher, and then moved on up in other areas of leadership there. He was a great Sunday school teacher here. He was an author. He wrote 25 books on math. Get over that. And then it was translated in all these different languages. Just amazing life, okay? And, and a great, a great man. And uh, Greg Morrison, who's been a longtime friend of the family, was one of those that spoke. And, and myself, I spoke, and Greg and Dr. Carter uh, covered the message part. All of us, our lives intersected with Rurik Wheeler. But I love what Greg had to say because Greg said that when he was ordained as a deacon around 27 years of age, that uh, he hadn't been a deacon but just a very short while. And one of our members, John Bell, walked up to him and he said to him, if you ever want to get some wisdom from a man in this church, you go to Rurik Wheeler. 
just out of nowhere. And so what Greg said is that for the next 23 years, he looked to Ruhr Quiller as his mentor. Greg was 27. Ruhr Quiller was 69 years old at that time, 69 years old. And Greg said, not once did I ever uh, contact him and say, hey, let's get together and will you mentor me or so. You know what he did? He just watched him. He just observed life with him. And he watched the way he interacted with his kids, the way he interacted with Joyce, his wife, the way he, he handled his business, uh, the way he handled with his Sunday school class. And sometimes Greg had an opportunity to teach his class. And, and just being on deacons and serving together, it was just an observation. And for him to stand here and say, for over 20 years of my life, I have looked to this man and have learned from this man. And he was like almost a silent mentor to me, kind of like a secret mentor on there. Man, you know, Dr. Wheeler had a great legacy. That just adds to it. And for every one of us, every generation being together, this is the life that we should live, a life that is self-controlled, a godly life worthy of respect so that there may be some people that may contact us and say, I would love to interact with you. There will be others that are just going to be watching us. But wouldn't that be great to know that your life and my life was in such a way that somebody gained something just by watching us, just by observing how we lived and say, I can take this and I can take this, I can plug it into my own life, and my life is richer because of that person there. Every generation together, all right? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you know, I thank you that your challenge in Scripture is to remind us that we are to take your word and to teach your word and your works to every generation. Thank you for blessing us as Shades Mountain to be a multi-generational church to where we can benefit from all different ages to help us in our journey of life and as you write that story on our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that during these moments, even as we come to a response time, that we will think about the challenge that Paul gave to Titus and to the older men and to the older women and to know, Lord, that we can put our name in there, no matter what our age is, to live lives worthy of respect and self-controlled and to be those who are pure in our lives and that we don't revile the Word of God. And so speak to us during this response time. And it's my prayer that we would have a commitment to reach every generation with the gospel And whether through my words and through my works, that I can be a witness for you. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.